Chapter Eleven of the Secret of the Silver Car by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eleven. Anthony plays his hand. Lord Rosecarrel opened his townhouse in Grosvenor Place at the beginning of May for the London season. Lady Daphne observed that he had shaken off the gloom and apathy which had engulfed him for the last few years. He began to take a more vivid interest in the international situations which grew out of the peace conference. He began to talk to the girl again about the aims of nations with respect to Persia, and indirectly with the future of India. The earl was waiting impatiently for her one night when she came back from an opera party given in her honour by Rudolf Castoon. Daphne, he began abruptly, do you believe absolutely in the bona fides of Anthony Trent? The girl felt herself colouring. Absolutely, she said steadily. Why? I've had a long cable from him, he returned, a cable so extraordinary that I can hardly believe he sent it. Here it is. It is only partly in cipher, for the reason the cipher code I made was not intended for a message such as this. What you would not understand I have decoded. The girl took the slip of paper eagerly. At once, she read, allow papers to announce that you have decided to come from retirement and accept public office. If Temesfar wires for confirmation, persist in your statement. If he threatens, tell him he has not got treaty. Tell him, if he has it, to bring it to the Prime Minister. Follow these instructions implicitly, otherwise I can never succeed. And will you? Daphne demanded breathlessly. I don't know, the Earl said slowly. It seems rather a desperate thing to do. You must have heard rumours that I have been offered the enormously important position of Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in the Cabinet that will be formed when the present government goes out of office. There will be two men there who are my enemies. There is, for instance, Rudolf Castoon, whose guest you have been tonight, and Buchanan, who will be Home Secretary. Castoon knows I do not trust him wholly. There is always a danger in making a man of his kind Chancellor of the Exchequer. He has a brother in every great country, and some of them have been our bitter enemies in the past. Buchanan, of course, exercises enormous influence through his newspapers, and seems to feel a personal grievance against me. "'It was because you never would invite him here or to the castle,' she answered, although he was forever spelling for an invitation. Those nouveau riches are very sensitive. "'If I accepted office,' the earl went on slowly, I should have these two men against me, and if by any ill chance it should become known that I did not destroy the draft of a treaty which was entrusted to me, Buchanan would see his opportunity, and use his wretched papers to the full. I should be forced out of public life. I have always been intolerant of breaches of faith, and that would be remembered against me as a mark of hypocrisy.' "'But Mr. Trent says Count Michael Temesvar hasn't got the treaty,' she cried. "'And that means he has it.' Her father shook his head. "'That's just what it doesn't mean,' he returned. "'Mr. Trent says I am to tell Count Michael he has not the treaty. "'If Trent had it, he would have told me so. "'I am to do this risky thing in order that he may ultimately succeed. "'You see, Daphne, my statement to the press that I have decided to take office.' is part of a move in the game that another man is playing. "'But he's playing it for you,' 
she cried. The Earl smiled. Is he? he returned. I'll admit at all events that I am the one most to be benefited if he succeeds. But he will succeed, she persisted. Does he look like the kind of man to be beaten? Did Captain Hardcastle look the kind of man either? Lord Rosecarrel asked. And you remember poor Piers Edgecombe, the best fencer in Europe, a man with nerves of steel. I firmly believe some of the Count's men killed him. It cost the girl an effort to say what she did. But, Dad, she reminded him, they had no experience at, at that sort of thing. And this one has? That alone comforts me. But the odds are so tremendously against him. He went there knowing it. I'm not sure that it would not be safer for you, for Arthur and for me, if I did go back permanently to private life. If Mr. Trent should fail. You won't be implicated, she reminded him. He has gone just as a cockney chauffeur. But don't you see, the Earl said patiently, that I am here invited to throw down the gauntlet to the man who has in his power what can disgrace me. Hardcastle and Sir Piers failed, but their failure did not drag me into it, as this scheme will do. Who will be Foreign Secretary if you refuse it? Daphne asked. That impossible non-conformist person Muir, who has never been farther afield than Paris, and has no knowledge of Eastern affairs at all. He will undo everything I have striven for. He will play into Count Michael's hands as a child might. Then isn't the chance worth taking? Daphne asked, pointing to the cable. I've taken it already, the Earl said. I wanted you to reassure me. I felt a confidence utterly without logical foundation as to the ability of your Anthony Trent. That's splendid, she cried. I am not so sure, her father returned. Daphne, you know what I mean when I say I hope Arthur's action in saving his life was not like those other actions of the poor lad which have brought dire trouble to us all. You must know that there can be no attachment between you and him. You'd better know it, she said quietly, but there is what you call an attachment. As to marriage, he says, like you, it is impossible, so I suppose it is. That's all over. She patted his grey hair affectionately. I'm not going to marry anyone. I shall have my hands full in looking after the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. My dear, he said, you are taking this wonderfully well. I'm grateful. I ought never to have let the thing drift along as I did. I blame myself. I'm glad, she whispered. You couldn't possibly understand it, but even if I never see him again, I shall always be thankful to have known him. The Earl looked at her and sighed. His daughter was one of the loveliest girls in England, highly accomplished, allied to some of the great families of her own land and continental Europe, and had been sought after since her coming-out ball. He had hoped to see her married to some honourable man of her own class, and instead she had fallen in love with an adventurer whose past, according to his own admission, made a marriage impossible. Of late he had suffered much. The death of his wife, the loss of two sons, the many troubles Arthur's past had brought, his enforced retirement, and now Daphne's hopeless attachment. The only thing that offered him any relaxation was the possibility of getting into harness again. 
and that would only be attainable if Anthony Trent, that mysterious American he had grown to like, succeeded in a forlorn hope. At least he must do his part. A little wearily, he took up the telephone and called a number in Downing Street, where was the official residence of the Prime Minister, the man primarily in charge of the destinies of a great empire. There was no telephone in Castle Ratna. Every morning some one of Count Michael's men went to Agram and brought back letters and telegrams. It fell to Anthony Trent to fetch the mail that came twenty-four hours after the conversation over the telephone with the Prime Minister. Among the many pieces which the postmaster placed in the double-locked mailbag was a transcontinental telegram. It was the function of this big letter-pouch to guard its contents from the inquisitives by locks to which only the postmaster and Hensi had keys. When once Trent had established this, he came by night to the room where the secretary snored and made impressions of the keys, and so was able to open the pouch without any forcing of the locks. Instead of going on to Ratna direct, Trent turned his car into a by-road of the oak forest and steamed open the wire. It was, as he feared, in code, which he might be able to decipher after long study. But if the language should be Croatian or Hungarian, he would still be in the dark. It chanced that the Count was near the garage as he drove in. It was a frequent habit of Count Michael's to walk over to the great stables where formerly his thoroughbreds had been housed, and now only a few riding-horses remained. He greeted Alfred with the manner that proved him to be in a good temper. Hence he was at his side and opened the mail-pouch. Instantly he passed the telegram to his master. Tinkering at some pretended indisposition of his engines, Trent watched the Count's face as he read. The man fell into a sudden and roaring rage. He gesticulated, he swore, and he pummeled the cringing Hensi. His talk was in Croatian, but his meaning was plain. Suddenly he turned on Trent. "'Do not put your car away,' he ordered him. "'You must return to Agron. No mail was ever entrusted to the Temesvar's servants. Even what was sent to Agram was sealed so that the postmaster alone or his assistant could unlock the bag. In the same secluded dell of the forest, Trent opened the bag a second time and read the message addressed to the Earl of Rosecarrel. "'I am informed,' it said, "'that you have accepted office. Deny this rumour instantly. Affirmation means danger to you. Michael Temesvar.' Trent chuckled. Things were beginning to move. Of late he had found his occupation boring. It seemed he was always acting as a mail-carrier chosen over Sissek because he made so much better time. He had no chance at golf. Pauline was away. Hence he told him so one day, when he had driven three ladies up from Fiume, and learned they were all high-born, and that for a time the company at the castle was distinguished. "'You would not understand what I meant,' Hensy said loftily. If I told you, many important things are going on. When our guests have gone, there may be those of Pauline's sort you may drive from Fiume. Then the air is different. For myself I prefer such company as we have at present. The lords and ladies, Trent said, remembering that he had seen Hensy acting as a sort of upper servant at such a dinner. Exactly, Hensy agreed. Pauline had been ill-advised enough to disobey the count, there is a guest who admired her. "'Why didn't the governor biff him one, same as he does you when he's mad?' Trent demanded. "'There are some to whom even Count Michael may offer no violence,' Hensy returned in a shocked voice. "'But you would not understand.' 
On the whole, Anthony Trent was glad that the prince had been the cause of the temporary removal of Pauline. She was a menace to him. Also, he rejoiced to think that the arbitrary Michael Temesvar had his own uneasy moments. Because Anthony Trent was more concerned in the successful outcome of his present design than any other of his adventurous career, he denied himself the pleasure of those nocturnal wanderings in the castle corridors and rooms, so that he might make Daphne happy by delivering her father from bondage, he decided to take no risks which might lead to his capture. Particularly, he wanted to secrete himself among the trees in green tubs and flowers of the courtyard, although it was not to his immediate advantage to learn of the plotting which was going on under the roof which sheltered him, a knowledge of it promised some interesting developments in the future. But now that the exchange of telegrams commenced between the two old adversaries, he found excitement enough in going to Agram and opening the wires. Lord Rosecarrel, he found, had acted on his instructions. He affirmed his intention to take office, and when he received another more threatening telegram from Count Michael, declared that he knew the treaty was not in his possession. Count Michael's anger was reflected in the face of each scurrying servant of the many with whom Trent came into contact. Hence he visited it vicariously upon one Alfred Anthony until that bellicose chauffeur reminded him that the fate of Peter Sissek was his for the asking. Later, hence he grew confidential. He had the impression that this humble member of a dominant people looked up to him for his world knowledge, and in order to impress Alfred Anthony de Moor, made indiscreet revelations which were duly stored in the careful retentive memory of Anthony Trent. It was from Hensey that Trent learned of the sudden trip of their common employer to London. "'It is most inconvenient for us both,' said the secretary, "'for his account that he should have to leave his guests, and for me that I should have to entertain them in his absence.' "'I thought you liked the company of lords and ladies,' Alfred Anthony said in simple tribute to his companion's parts. "'There is responsibility you could not comprehend,' Hensey returned and left Trent to think over his plans. So far things had travelled evenly. The test was now to come. He was reasonably certain that when Count Michael set out for London he would have in his possession the draft of the treaty. With this he would confront the Prime Minister, and possibly the entire Cabinet. He knew well of Buchanan's dislike of Lord Rosecarrel. Had Anthony Trent been in the Count's place, he would never have committed the error of taking so important a document with him. Trent invariably mailed what he had taken to himself, and breathed freer when the responsibility was on another's shoulders. This, of course, only when a long journey was to be made. When he had stolen the Mount Auburn ruby in San Francisco, he had mailed it to his camp in Maine, and thus confounded detectives who had searched his apartment. That Count Michael had not adopted this plan, he knew, because for the past week he alone had fetched and carried mail matter. The time he had taken in opening the mails had to be made up by faster travelling, and the line engine never failed him. The peasants used to point out the racing car with pride and give him road room gladly. On those tablets of memory he'd inscribed many interesting details that occurred in letters written by other than the Count. He could read in French, German, Italian, and Spanish, and the letters which most interested him were in German. Sometimes, in a lonely night, he wondered whether or not this knowledge might not be sufficiently important to at least three governments to win him a pardon should he ever be found out for crimes of other days. And if there should come a time when he were free from the ever-haunting fear of arrest, 
might there not be the fulfilment of his dearest wishes? He was sure Daphne would drop her title if he thought it best. Then he put the thought from him resolutely. That was in the future, and he was immediately concerned with the success of this thing he had sworn to accomplish. Hence he told him that Count Michael would travel by night to Fiume, there to board a Venice-bound boat, and catch the Continental Express for Paris. As none but he drove the line, and the Count preferred it and its driver, the assumption was that Alfred Anthony would take him. It was on this hypothesis that the success of Trent's scheme depended. He would probably be alone. At most some servant or valet would be chosen to travel with his master, and he would of course sit next to the chauffeur. Trent had long ago picked out a suitable spot where such a luckless person could be dumped. There was a steep, grassy bank some twenty miles along the road where a man, hit sufficiently deftly, would roll out of reach with small possibility of injury. A little stream ran at the bottom, which would revive him if stunned or drown him as the fates saw best. Stored in the line car was a change of apparel, some food and other necessaries. It was Hansi who broke the bad news. The secretary came upon the eager mechanic, tuning up his engine lovingly. So engrossed was he that he neither saw Hansi nor noticed that Peter Sissek was polishing the brasswork on his panhard. "'Getting things shipshape and Bristol fashion,' Trent said, when he saw Hensy. "'It is Peter who takes the count,' the secretary said idly. "'You are to go to Budapest tomorrow. "'You see what it is to be considered so skilful "'that Count Michael offers you to his guests "'and goes more slowly himself.' "'Then Trent noticed the grinning and triumphant Sissek. "'It was a black moment for him. "'Yes, Peter takes the count.' Hensy repeated. "'I think he'll have to,' Trent said slowly, "'for the second time.' This alteration in the schedule, which for the moment promised utter disruption to his plans, might have been brought about by reasons other than those suggested by Hensy. It was curious that at just this critical moment Sissek should be entrusted with his master's safety, and Trent given a mission which Peter Sissek, with his wider knowledge of the country, could better have filled.' but it was time wasting to ponder on this now. In three hours Trent would have started with his lion. Sissek, a slower driver, and using an older and less speedy car, must get away earlier. Almost frightened out of his accustomed calm, Trent learned that the Count was leaving in a little over an hour, just as the darkness would set in. What plans he could make must be made instantly. Failure was now almost at his side. Failure! Anthony Trent groaned at thought of it. Lord Rosecarrel would be publicly humiliated. Daphne would blame him for it. With what assurance and headstrong confidence he had plunged into an adventure which had brought death to those other men. He could never face her if he failed, and failure was in sight. For a moment he thought of forcing a quarrel on Peter Sissek. Before Hensy or others could intervene, he could, with his boxer's skill, most certainly damage one eye, if not two, of a man who, to drive down dark and dangerous roads, must possess unclouded vision. But he hesitated. If Count Michael had chosen Sissek because Alfred Anthony was under suspicion, an assault on the Croatian, at the present moment, might tend to confirm these doubts, and he might find himself overpowered and under guards he could not overwhelm. To put the car out of commission was hardly possible, with Sissek guarding it and another man cleaning it. And these two, it seemed to Trent, were watching suspiciously. 
by some trick of fate it was Sissek himself who contributed to Trent's success. Peter was arrogant now, and motioned to Trent to aid him in lifting some baggage to the top of the Panhard limousine. Like most of the Continental cars, it had a deep luggage rail round the top on which trunks or lesser baggage could be carried. There was a cabin trunk, a bundle of rugs, and a dressing bag. Peter Sissek was astonished when Trent cheerfully obeyed him and even helped to strap the cabin trunk securely. Hence he was amazed at the sudden change that had taken place in the English chauffeur's attitude. He was now lively, who had been gloomy, and loquacious, when he had been taciturn. "'Why do you laugh?' he asked. "'At the idea of Peter taking the count,' said Trent. "'Some day you'll know what that means.' "'I know now,' Hensy insisted. "'I speak perfectly, and my English vocabulary is wider than could be that of a man of your position.' As Peter Sissek, unaccompanied by valet or assistant, drove down the hill, after leaving the pavilion at the first tee on his left, he was horrified to find a tree across his path. He dismounted, moved it aside with difficulty, and proceeded on his way. But this time he carried two passengers. The motor had come to an abrupt stop under a big oak tree whose spreading arms reached across the mountain road. Lying along one of those rigid oak limbs, Anthony Trent, after nicely adjusting the fallen tree so that Peter Sissek's eyes would see it at the proper moment, had waited anxiously for the approach of the panard. He was not sure that the powerful headlights would not pierce his leafy shelter and discover him to the watchful driver. He could imagine vividly the chauffeur warning his employer, and as Count Michael always went armed and might even now be suspicious of his cockney servant, he would very likely have no hesitation in picking him off the bows as Anthony Trent years before in his New Hampshire hills, had shot squirrels. If by any chance he could get to the ground only twelve feet beneath, before he was aimed at, he would have to trust to the moment's inspiration for his next move. He knew almost certainly that Count Michael carried the document he wanted in a flat leather case which fitted into his breast pocket. If by any chance the man did not see him, and the car passed him on its seaward way, his errand would be unaccomplished, his boasts vain, and the humiliation of his friends certain. He had determined, if this happened, to send a telegram to the Earl admitting defeat, and warning of the Count's visit. The panard came to a grinding stop a foot from the barrier. Sissek removed it as quickly as he could, but it was heavy enough to have taxed Anthony Trent's superior strength, and the Count grew so impatient at the time taken that he sprang down to the road and urged his man to greater activities. The two were jabbering in Croatian, when Anthony Trent lowered himself to the top of the limousine and nestled down in the shadow of the baggage. Trent had often been incensed in reading newspaper accounts of his exploits to find that their success was so often ascribed to mere luck. He supposed it would be so this time if it were known. People would say that, owing to two boulders in the side of the road, Sissek pulled up so that Trent could drop directly down onto the car. In most cases, the greatest luck comes to the best player and Anthony Trent had placed the rocks on the road with the same care that he would play a stroke in golf, or cast along the edge of lily-pads where the big trout lay in graceful ease. There was only one place where Sissek could hold his machine. It was while the car travelled along a poor and rough section of the road before reaching the Marie-Louise road that Trent unstrapped a bundle and selected a dark travelling rug to cover him from observant eyes in the infrequent towns through which they must pass. 
half a hundred schemes raced through his quick, fertile brain only to be rejected. He wondered, for instance, if it were possible to cut through the top of the car and get at the Count, who was certain to be sleeping a goodly portion of the journey. He decided that to lean over the rails and try to peer through the oval glass window in the rear would also be unwise. At most he would only catch a glimpse of the Count and might just as easily be seen himself. Then he wondered if it might not be possible to drop down on Peter Sissek's shoulders and strangle him into quietness. But Peter Sissek was taking his car along at a steady rate of twenty-five miles the hour, and with his hands off the steering wheel, a certain contingency if Trent's strong fingers closed around his throat, a bad accident was inevitable. A precipice on one side and a wall of rock on the other, he would be between the deep sea and the devil. He saw that Sissek must be eliminated at all costs. A match for either of them, singly, Trent would certainly be overpowered in a tussle with both. Although they lacked the cat-like quickness of the American, they were both of uncommon strength. The immediate problem was to get rid of Sissek and leave his master none the wiser. There was a part of the road through which they must presently pass which promised aid to the schemer. It was a gentle rise through a very dense section of beech forest, and Peter would go slowly fearing that the uneven service would jolt his lord into unwelcome anger. Peter Sissek, straining his eyes to see that his way was clear, was startled when one of the pieces of baggage on the top of the car was jolted off. It fell on the Pennard's bonnet and then bounded into the side of the road. He had run past it fifty yards before he brought his machine to a stop. When he backed up to the fallen bag, Count Michael was roused from slumber and ascribed the accident to Peter's carelessness. In the chauffeur's apology, Anthony Trent heard his assumed name brought in. Plainly, Peter was making him the culprit. He had pitched the bundle from the roof with some skill. It bounded far into the shadow. Finally, Peter Sissek stumbled over it. And as he stooped to retrieve it, Alfred Anthony swung at him. For the second time, Peter had taken the count. To hit a defenceless, unsuspecting man was not a thing to give Trent any pleasure, but it was not a moment in which to hesitate. With Peter's livery cap and duster on, Trent took the bundle on his shoulder and carried it at such an angle that in case of scrutiny his face would be shielded from gaze. A quick backward glance a few minutes later on showed the new driver that the Count had resumed his broken slumbers. So well indeed did the Lord of Castle Rotna sleep that he did not know the Pennard had left the main road or that any danger threatened him until he was suddenly hauled from his springy seat to look into the clear, hard eyes of Alfred Anthony. Then he realized that his revolver was in the cockney's hand, and the precious wallet gone from his pocket. Count Michael was no coward, and he thought quickly with that intriguing, plotting brain of his. A great diamond still sparkled upon his finger, and the money in another pocket was untouched. "'I should have been wiser,' he commented. "'I thought my Lord Rose Crowell had become suddenly mad. Now I see that he was saner than I.' First Captain the Honourable Oswald Hardcastle, then Sir Piers Edgecombe, and now you. May I ask your name and rank? You've been my servant, and succeeded so far where they failed. Anthony Trent was not expecting this attitude. He'd been so used to seeing the Count fly into stupendous rages that this calm, collected manner was disturbing. It might be the man's natural attitude in moments of real peril— or it might merely mean he knew he was ultimately to be the victor. It was a curious scene. The Pennard had come to rest in a clearing of the woods, and a brilliant moon gave the place almost the clarity of day. 
Count Michael sat down on a log and lighted a cigarette. Almost he was usurping Trent's role under such circumstances. "'This interests me,' said Count Michael. "'Let us discuss it.' "'I've no time,' Trent said, smiling. "'I'm due at Fiume or Trieste or Zara, as the case may be, at a certain hour, and as I haven't a line here, I must push on.' "'Have you thought that I shall certainly pursue you, and assuredly capture you?' "'You may pursue later, when you are found, but by that time I shall be gone.' "'You can never escape me,' the Count said. "'I have a long arm, and I do not forget, and my vengeance is a bad thing for those against whom it is directed.' "'It's not altogether healthy to have me for an enemy,' Trent reminded him. "'I have my own likes and dislikes.' The Count sneered. "'You?' he cried. "'Who are you? What have you done that men should fear you? For a moment you have a little luck, the little luck that will bring you blindly to greater danger.' "'I am strictly incognito,' Trent answered. "'Once I was unwise enough to answer such a challenge, but you may believe me that I, too, have a name. Now, Count, it won't help you a bit to put up a fight. It will save you trouble if you'll back up against that tree and let me tie you up.' "'You would put this outrage on me?' the other cried, his calm leaving him, the veins standing out on an empurpled forehead like raised, livid ridges. "'Get up!' Anthony Trent snapped. "'It is because you have a pistol,' the Count said. "'Put that down if you are a man, and then see what you can make me do.' "'You may believe it or not,' Trent retorted, "'but it hurts me to have to decline the offer. If I dared take time I would return several little tendernesses of yours.' As it is, I can't, having a weapon, strike a man who hasn't one. You are luckier than you know. Back up there and do it damn quick. Trent was certain that Count Temesvar could never unfasten his bonds, and as he was gagged he could not cry for help. Some swineherd or peasant would discover him later. Meanwhile the discipline would be good. Goodbye, said Trent genially. Give my love to your guest the prince and all his high-born companions. If Count Michael had looked angry before, his face now was doubly hideous with rage. His hold over Lord Rosecarrel was gone, and he could not doubt but this stranger who had posed as a chauffeur had learned somehow of the presence of the prince. If it were known in the chancelleries of Europe, all his carefully matured plans would go for naught. Unless Alfred Anthony were captured, Michael, Count Temesvar, could never again make his pleasant little trips to the great houses of England, France, and Italy. There he was known as one who had abandoned all political ambitions to become merely the country magnate interested in cattle and crops. Never again could he gather useful information over friendly dinner-tables, or hop-nop with prime ministers over golf, or auction bridge, if it were known he was giving sanctuary to one who threatened the world peace. When Anthony Trent had satisfied himself that the document he'd taken was the one Arthur stole from his father, he knew, in order to be absolutely safe, it should be destroyed. Its destruction would give the Earl immunity. But Trent hesitated. Once already, Lord Rosecarrel had believed it was demolished and had suffered terribly for his trust. Inevitably, there would be a seed of suspicion if a comparative stranger, confessedly one who had profited by unlawful operations, should ask him to take as true that the treaty had again been destroyed. A man in Trent's position was doubly sensitive in a matter of this sort. He had no long and honourable record to back his assertions, and although in the present instance 
he was actuated by no motives of self-aggrandizement, he was not sure others, Daphne alone excepted, would believe him. He thanked God that with her it was different. So he put the paper in an envelope already stamped and addressed, and placed it in his pocket. Then he started for a port of safety. It seemed impossible that he should miss the way in the bright moonlight, but he realized a few minutes later that he was only circling around the clearing where the Count was tied to a tree. His headlights showed him innumerable roads like those by which he had come, but there was no distinctive sign to guide him to the road to the coast. A group of peasants, going incredibly early to their work, could not understand him. He repeated the word fiume, but even that did not help. Their little life was bounded by the confines of a few square miles, and the troop trains which had taken them to the battle lines of a year or so back had only confused them as to topography. Among the big oaks and beeches, Trent could not easily find one tall enough to bear his weight on branches that would let him see over the tops of the others. When dawn came, he was in no better plight. The position in which Anthony Trent found himself was by far the most serious of his career. Hitherto he had faced imprisonment at most. Now capture meant, without doubt, death. He had, without thinking of the folly of his utterance, told Count Michael that he knew of the presence of the guests unsuspected by the great powers. Count Michael had probably staged the supposed escape of the prince and supplied a convenient corpse for his interment. Unrest was in every portion of what had once been the dual monarchy. Beggars on horseback were riding to a fall, and the Balkan volcano was near eruption and Anthony Trent, alone of those opposed to Count Michael's party, knew where was hidden the man whom the Count was coaching for his big role. His escape would mean disaster. By this time, no doubt, passing countrymen had recognized their overlord and released him. But for lack of a compass, Anthony Trent should even now have been at a port where he could escape to a friendly vessel. He remembered what Lord Rosecarrel had told him of Count Michael's character and autocratic power. Although theoretically shorn of his former absolutism, it was unlikely that peasants who worked on his lands and still felt their dependence upon him should question Count Michael's actions. World news which spreads rapidly among the herded workers in factories crept slowly among these land-tillers. They had enough to eat and drink and were grateful for that after their years of fighting. Now that capture was imminent, Trent knew that the document must be destroyed, but even in this he delayed hoping his usual luck might cling to him and make the sacrifice unnecessary. He abandoned the automobile. Its wheels were embedded in black viscid mud, and to extricate them, the engine would have to run on low speed and announce the car's position to such as might already be seeking him. If he could pass the day uncaptured, he might at night be able to free the car of its imprisoning mud and make his escape. He had woodcraft enough to be able to mark down the spot where the panard was hidden. It was high noon when Anthony Trent came in sight of a farm. A big dog came toward him with sharp, staccato, inquiring barks. He had a way of making dogs his friends, and soon the animal was wagging a welcoming tail. Trent satisfied his hunger and thirst with a meal of early plums, and lighted his last woodbine. The Croatian farmers of the district in which he found himself were horse-breeders to a man. It was an industry which the government had always approved and encouraged, Without a doubt, in the distant barns there was some favourite animal which might bear Trent to safety if his car had been discovered. The watchdog, now satisfied that the stranger was one to be adored, would prove no obstacle. 
Trent nestled back in some drying hay, well out of sight, he supposed, of observers, and dropped into a profound sleep. It was the unusual spectacle of the watchdog sitting by the mound of hay that attracted the notice of the farmer. He supposed that the animal, part hound and part draft dog, had run some animal to earth. When the farmer saw that the stranger slept there for whom he had, under Count Michael's direction, scoured the forest since dawn, he wisely brought assistance. Thus it was that Anthony Trent, rudely brought back to an unsympathetic earth, found himself seized, bruised, and bound before he had time to recover his senses or put up a fight. Peter Sissek it was who carried him to the recovered panard and threw him violently to the floor. And for every blow that Trent had struck Sissek in fair fight, the Croatian returned with interest now that his conqueror was bound and hopeless. One of Peter's assistants sat on the seat brandishing the revolver which had been the Count's. He talked incessantly, threatening, no doubt, and insulting the captive, and punctuating his effective with kicks that bruised the American's ribs sorely. He was carried past a mob of jeering servants when the castle was reached, and put in a room which had been used as a dungeon for five hundred years. As he looked about the stone-walled cell, with its narrow windows, through which his body could scarcely pass, even though the heavy bars were sawn through, he knew his professional skill would avail him nothing. There was one safeguard for jailers which he sighed to see. Inside the door was a cage of iron where a keeper might stand and be protected from the sudden onslaught of a waiting prisoner. Thus the most usual form of escape was taken from him. Hensy was his first visitor, poor, rotund, posing Hensy, who had liked Alfred Anthony largely because he supposed it was a semi-educated London cockney who had listened to his worldly wisdom. When he had learned from his master that this pretended chauffeur was the third of the Rose Carell adherents who had made desperate attempts, he supposed him to be of a high degree. With amusement, Anthony Trent saw the change in his manner. Although disgraced and in prison, Hensy paid the respect that he invariably accorded to birth. He told himself that it was because he noted the instincts of blue blood that he had found pleasure in talking with Alfred Anthony. Trent's careless manner, which had sometimes seemed overbold in a chauffeur, was now explained. "'I grieve very much to see the marks of violence inflicted upon you by a clot like Peter Sissek,' he began. "'I knocked the same clot out when he wasn't looking,' Trent returned. "'So he had a kick coming. He didn't come to be merely polite, Hansy. What is it? Torture? Boiling oil?' "'It will not be boiling oil,' Hansy answered seriously. Anthony Trent looked at him searchingly. Of course, Hensy had his purpose in coming here, and that he did not deny the possibility of a Croatian third degree convinced the American that the danger he anticipated was real and near. So far as Count Michael's power went in his own castle of Ratna, his prisoner might be in medieval times. Trent was a danger to be nullified, and a single life was hardly worthy of consideration in the game the Count was playing. To lose his life was bitter enough but to lose it after failing, and so be denied another chance to make good, was agonizing. Hence he gathered nothing from his scrutiny of the other man's battered face. He saw that the forced and rather vacuous grin which Anthony Trent had worn when he lived another part was gone. Only the powerful, brooding, hawk-like look which he had occasionally seen for a flesh now remained. He did not doubt but that this was the true character of the man a great English noble had chosen for a dangerous mission." "'You will remain here until the Count returns,' Hensy announced. 
"'How long?' Trent snapped. "'A week, certainly. More likely, too.' "'What will happen then?' Hensy sighed. His master's violence often frightened him. He came of a peace-loving family. "'Said I cannot say.' "'I can't go without a daily shave,' Trent said, yawning. "'And I need cigarettes and the London papers. You can get them for me?' "'The razor I dare not,' Hensy said. "'The rest you shall have.' "'Afraid I shall commit suicide? You ought to be glad if I did. It would save Count Michael a lot of trouble.' That cage there prevents my slitting the throat of a keeper. A child with a gun could poke the barrel through the bars and put me out of business. Come, Hansie, be human. I will not live with whiskers. I swear to do myself no damage, or anyone else either. You give me the word of a man of noble birth? Hansie inquired anxiously. You cannot conceal your origin from me. You may not wish it known, but I know. Anthony Trent kept a straight face. Hansie had always amused him. Hansie, he said seriously, I must preserve my incognito at all costs. That you appreciate, but if it will make you more comfortable, I will tell you that in my own country there is not a man who has the right to call himself my superior or go in to dinner before me. Hansie's bow was most profound. He had known it all along. This was assuredly the venturesome holder of an ancient title, a man of high birth, and born to great honour. Hansie's own Sheffield blades were at his disposal. End of chapter 11